Hello everyone, it's April 3rd, 2018. On this week's show, we try to tease out what happened with that Falcon 9 second stage camera blackout. We also discuss a recent change Blue Origin made to its second stage. I believe that sets the stage and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 152 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Good morning, David. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm all right. I'm partially on the road. I'm not on the road. I'm at my mom's house. Uh, I made a pit stop, but uh, yeah, a bit of a road trip. And so I, you know, had to carve out a Sunday morning and I managed to do that. So I'm quite proud of myself <laughs> making the podcast happen no matter what for you, the listeners. And you say that being the host that hasn't like disappeared for an episode or two i guess not huh yeah i mean well i mean we've canceled the show because of a hurricane i remember that but that's about the only time i can remember anything like that happening for me right there was a hurricane yeah hurricane so david i understand that i'm hearing you through space today yes that is correct yes um (laughs) but this isn't really selling space was it because it's not a great connection but yeah, we're communicating through, I guess, one of four satellites. I briefly looked them up on Wikipedia this morning to figure out who they were because I was, I've never heard of Viasat. And it's apparently a company based out of somewhere in California. We might talk a little bit more about space-based internet later on in the show. So let's just go ahead and, I guess, uh, move on with uh, this week in spaceflight history. And I think we have some winners, more than a couple, once again, just like last week. So I guess this was a yeah. kind of an easy one, huh? Yeah, I knew this was going to be an easy clue this week. I kind of was asking for it. But, I mean, it's... I, I thought it was a fun clue. Anyway, so our winners this week in no particular order are Chris Radcliffe, Valentin Frank, uh, Fel Knight, Karen Thompson, Gregory Dudless, Alistair Cranston, who I think is a Patreon supporter. This is the first time he's tweeted at us, and his Twitter handle is Scottish Bacon, and that's fantastic. Uh, Mini Elon and Elon the Accuser. Uh, apparently, we've got a lot of fake Elons out there. Um, so the clue for this week was when is a salute not a salute? This week in spaceflight history is the 3rd of April, 1973. It was the launch of Salyut 2. So, of course, a salute is not a salute when it's actually an Almaz. So, they had, the Soviets had two different space station programs running at the same time, Salyut and Almaz, but they didn't want anybody to know that they had a military space station. So, they decided to call it a Salyut and, you know, kind of pretend like it was the same thing. I think a couple of different people pointed out that it's uh, really interesting that Salyut is the civilian, you know, quote unquote, civilian science uh, vehicle and Salyut means salute, whereas Almaz means diamond. And that's much less militant, even though it's the military version. So anyway, uh, there were three Almaz stations in total. So, you know, two after uh, Almaz 1 or Salyut 2. They didn't fly any more than that, even though they had lots planned. Um, Salyut 4 was definitely like in the works and ready to go, but then they had a couple of like extra, um, not completely assembled vehicles ready to go. And they decided to not fly them because obviously to us, they're more resource intensive than automated observatories. And we are kind of at that turning point where you know one and the other kind of started overlapping those curves where uh, automation becomes useful enough that it's better than the than the resource intensiveness of flying people uh interestingly enough uh the almaz stations are the only armed vehicles in space so far as far as we know anyway um i don't know much about weaponry but i did some reading on wikipedia (laughs) so almaz 
3 definitely had a cannon on board and they actually test fired it at the end. Almaz 4 was supposed to have rockets, um, but I don't know if Almaz 1 and 2 had these cannons on board. Presumably they did, but I don't think they did the the testing at the end to prove it. Uh, But anyway, these cannons were 32 millimeter Richter cannons, and these things were super, super uh, high speed rotary cannons that could fire, according to Wikipedia, 1,800 to 2,000 rounds. And then in parentheses, it says up to 2,600. I don't know why they have two upper limits. But anyway, so we're talking up to 2,600 rounds per minute, which is insane. Um, Unfortunately, they had just 32 slugs on board. So, (laughs) you know, you can fire them off very, very quickly. And these, these slugs were either 168 grams or 173 grams, depending on which version of Canada, I don't know. Um, and they fired them at 850 meters per second relative to the station. So, I mean, this is, this is almost getting into like propulsion range, you know, like as a, as a viable way to propulse yourself. Well, I guess being so small, they, they, they wouldn't have too much of an effect, but they would certainly jolt the vehicle. Okay. So I, and I know we've talked about the Almaz before, like I think it was one of the very first episodes and we had talked about it with Connor because he's more of an expert on these things. I don't remember now, what was the purpose of this? Was this just to prove that you could have giant guns in space? Because what were you going to shoot at? I just don't know what the utility was of it. Well, I mean, if you have people on board, presumably if we were in you know, a hot war, maybe we would go after some of these observation satellites. But I mean, it just, yeah, it's it's really, really expensive to go after one of these things with another crewed vehicle. Uh, nowadays, you know, we'd probably send a, an uncrewed, probably uh, jet-launched rocket. I mean, we've, we've done that yeah. before. Sam Moore in the chat points out that some Soviet satellites at the time had self-destruct charges, so maybe those count as weapons, but I don't, I don't think that counts. And cer- certainly it's not in the class of, you know, actually firing projectiles intended to, to harm another vehicle. Anyway, so, so the Almaz program still echoes today, right? Even though it's, uh, you know, kaput and we're, we're not doing that anymore, the Almaz program resulted in the design of the TKS spacecraft, um, which never properly flew uh well i mean kind of so it's a two-part spacecraft um the return vehicle is called the va spacecraft this is a really weird looking spacecraft because it's got um the deorbit engines above the biconic re-entry uh vehicle so in shape it looks much more like um the conical section uh the or the conical cross section of an Apollo command module but it's you know the size of a Soyuz basically cuz you know Soyuz vehicles are they got much steeper sides right so this has got much more sloped sides and then that slope kind of continues above what will actually re-enter and there's a detachable um you know quote unquote service module that has um the deorbit rockets above you know like what we would think of as the top of the spacecraft. And then you can dock this VA to an FCB, right? A functional cargo block, which will sound familiar to some people. And the, the FCB is this very large uh, pressurized vehicle with gigantic solar arrays. And it's actually a really nice, comfortable place to live if you're um, in space for a while. So the TKS spacecraft altogether um, is kind of these three modules, two tiny modules, and then one gigantic module. The FCB is actually large enough 
Uh, oh yeah, Sam, Sam's correct in the chat. He says that it's uh, that they were not docked; they were launched as one piece, kind of like MOL, the Manned Orbital Laboratory, which was crazy because it also put a hole in the or a hole through a heat shield, which is exactly what VA has to to be able to go from VA down into FCB. But anyway, FCB is big enough to be a space station in its own right. And in fact, um, the people who recognize FCB know that the Zarya module on this International Space Station is actually a functional cargo block. Um, that's kind of where its heritage comes from. And so Almaz lives to this day because they developed part of the International Space Station or, or you know, a, a predecessor to part of the International Space Station as something that could refuel and, and service Almaz uh, stations in orbit. I just think that's really cool. Um, and honestly, I, I really wish that we could have seen TKS fly as its own vehicle. Um, that's an amazing way to go visit the moon is with a gigantic uh, laboratory um, to go do that. And also, I love the size of the solar panels on FCB. Like, they, they really were gigantic things. And it seems really cool to, to go to the moon with fold-out solar panels, because we haven't really done, or we haven't done that with people, anyway. So back to Almaz-1. I've kind of talked about the Almaz program in general. Almaz-1 was actually pretty boring. So three days after it launched, the third stage of the proton that launched it exploded mostly because uh, or they, they cited tank pressure changes, which really means that the tanks got too hot, the fuel all turned into gas, and then made everything explode. Um, so you have this gigantic debris cloud uh, that's relatively close to your brand new space station. And 10 days later, there was a debris strike or probably several debris strikes. Uh, it caused depressurization of the pressurized, uh, the, the pressure body of the vehicle. So right there, you can't put people in it without spacesuits. And what's the point? Uh, there was a fuel line rupture, which supposedly burned a hole in the side of the space station. Uh, not fun. And they also lost all of their solar panels, which means that even if this thing had enough fuel to control its re-entry or at least to control its orientation, it wouldn't have had the power to do so after very long. So Salyut 2 or Almaz 1 was launched on the 3rd of April and it deorbited by the end of May. And it kind of was broken up into several chunks. So there's no one re-entry re date to, to kind of point at. But yeah, there you go. Almaz 1, pretty boring mission. I mean, if you discount uh you know flaming balls of exploding spacecraft in in orbit i think that's kind of cool though because so this was the third stage and it was in close proximity to the the almaz you're saying and then it exploded and that's what caused the damage relatively close in an orbital sense um i mean if it took the debris 10 days to reach it that tells you that it wasn't on the same orbit um as the almaz until it exploded and some of its debris happened to get into a similar orbit or at least an orbit that resulted in you know an intersection later on down the line i guess it's just a good example that you know stuff very quickly gets around in low earth orbit so uh, be very careful just make sure to be responsible and deorbit your upper stages i think that's <laughs> uh, the safety tip for this week um so one last thing you know kind of looking forward to the future of almaz there is a company called Excalibur Almaz. Chris Radcliffe was really excited about this when he wrote in. And Excalibur Almaz 
in theory, is going to put, I think, two of the remaining Almaz bodies into orbit. They have two of these vehicles left over, and they're going to make them, in theory, tourist, uh, like hotels. But the company has also talked about doing asteroid mining, which I think those two targets are, are a little too different to be successfully chased by the same company, at least at the moment. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe in the future we'll see another Almaz fly. Uh, Sam Moore in the chat points out that Excalibur Almaz actually got sued in 2016. A, a customer alleged that the agreement they had purchased these vehicles under stipulated they were not to be modified. So, you know, who, who knows? And apparently uh, they haven't made much noise since they got sued. So uh, it's disappointing, but, you know, not a surprising way for a space company to die. Um, if that's what happened. So um, we'll have a link to that story or uh, a source for Excalibur Almaz getting sued. And then also there's a really good photo that Sam posted that I'll also put in the show notes, which is a, a couple of um, Angara, the, the launch vehicle models um, with a TKS on top, which is really cool. I've never seen these, or at least not paid attention to them. So that'll also be in the show notes, so you can kind of get an idea of the shape of a TKS. So uh, what do you have for next week? What's our next clue? Next week in 1990, the clue is for sale no longer. 1990, for sale no longer. I don't know off the top of my head, but that sounds like an easy one to research. Uh, but uh, if any of the listeners think they know, uh, why don't you just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everybody Tiangong one deorbit update so do we have an update um the last i heard it's coming it's going to deorbit like any second now like maybe as we're <laughs> recording this it's quite possible not as we record this um but this morning the error bars were two and a half hours and now it's down to two hours so i've got a really good link in here to aerospace.org who's doing some tracking and they have um, a graphic that gets updated every few minutes that's really good but right now, the space station is predicted to... And there, there are a couple of different predictions, but I'm going to go with aerospaces because they have a nice graphic, right? <laughs> and, and that counts for something. Um, but they're currently predicted to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere April 2nd at 18 minutes after midnight UTC, plus or minus two hours. So we're, we're still looking at a, at a good, from the time that we're recording this, we're looking at a good like seven or eight hours to re-entry. Um, but since we're down to two hours, when we're playing Splashdown Bingo, that eliminates a lot of people time-wise. Um, but it also eliminates a decent number of people for location. Um, because those two hours are only, you know, like four orbits, three, three or four orbits. Um, so right now, the space station is very, 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 unless something really weird happens, it's very, very unlikely to re-enter over North America. It's also very unlikely to re-enter over Southeast Asia or Australia. Of course, it's not going to re-enter over Russia because that's too far north. Or, I mean, pretty much all of Europe is, is too far north. There's a reasonable chance. I mean, reasonable. Like, there, there's a chance it'll re-enter over the southern half of South America, over pretty much the entirety of Africa. A little bit of the Mediterranean is kind of in there, but that's that would only be if it re-enters earlier than expected, or the, at the early end of that range. And then um, sort of 
China and that kind of whole latitude in in Eurasia um, is is still possible. Oh, um, Dan in the chat says that it could re-enter over Russia if it's east of the Black Sea. So, okay, that's that's fair. I guess Russia does come down pretty far south over there. But yeah, this is going to continue. But I mean, by the time I don't know why I'm saying this because by the time uh, the show comes out, it will have re-entered. So maybe maybe I should just re-record all of this then. Uh, what do you think, David? I guess so, but that takes the fun out of uh, hearing us guess. So, <laughs> um, even though since we're the hosts, we're not eligible for playing Splashdown Bingo, or at least not counting um, as like players. I did make my guess. Oh, you did? Yeah, I didn't put it in because I figured I shouldn't. I shouldn't do that. But you know, just for fun. And my guess was, uh, and I don't know if it's completely out of the question now. Yeah, it looks like it is. But um, I was guessing somewhere just east of Sri Lanka. And for no particular reason, I just said, hey, how about there? But it uh, looks like that's not going to happen given where it's most likely to re-enter. But that was my guess for whatever it's worth. I Did think you have pretty one? far out of likelihood. No, I didn't make any guesses because I-, I was doing all the work to get everybody else's guesses down. I didn't want to take the time to actually um, <laughs> fig- figure out what what we are looking at. I know that at least one person tied there because for Splashdown Bingo we're doing location and time. I know at least one person actually figured out what time it would be over a certain uh, certain point on the Earth, um, which I thought was pretty fun. Trying to go for both of them, uh, but yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have separate winners. So anyway. Uh, by the time this show goes out, um, we'll have a winner, hopefully. Hopefully, we'll have enough information to drill down and, and pick an individual winner. And that should be pretty exciting. I wonder how accurate can they get reentry if it happens somewhere like over the Pacific Ocean? Right. Because then you pretty much need visual confirmation, right? Because how else can you know? I mean, you can probably hear it coming in. I mean, like there are probably sensors that can hear the radio static generated by that. I don't know. But yeah, I'm assuming that uh, the, the specificity will be lower if it's not over land, which it's, you know, not guaranteed to be over land. Yeah, I guess this whole conversation is, as they say, academic, right? So we should just move <laughs> on. Well, be- before we do that, there is one thing that I can say that will always be interesting. Uh, Laura Forchuk on Twitter linked to uh, linked to this document. I think it's really cool. Um, so it's from planet4589.org. And it is a list uh, from Jonathan McDowell. So it's a list of the largest mass vehicles uh, that have ever re-entered. Yeah, Tiangong One is only the 49th largest. There are plenty of larger vehicles that have re-entered. Um, I actually thought that Tiangong One was was more massive than this. It's um, not that much more massive than a, than a big progress. So according to this chart, it is what seven and a half tons. Is that right? Because that seems, I mean, that's not, I know it's not very big. It's just one module, but still, that's very light. I would have thought it would weigh Mm -hmm. more than that. But yeah, just seven and a half tons. And there's plenty of things that are heavier than that. Yeah. Yeah. So so some notable objects working up from the bottom. Uh, There's actually a, a Sputnik. Uh, a couple of Sputnik rockets on here that re-entered that were were bigger. Um, a bunch of Zenits were all bigger. There's a Saturn S4B listed on here, and only oh no, there's a couple of them. So Apollo six was the smallest, and then Apollo five was the biggest, and seven was in the middle. Um, so three of those guys. There are a couple of other Saturn stages that apparently got high enough to be counted as re-entering. And then up at the top, number two is Skylab at 75.7 tons. And then the number one object, which I guess is debatable because this is talking about 
uncontrolled entry is uh, OV-102 Columbia, which weighed 106.4 tons when it re-entered. Um, and Jonathan has a note on here that says STS-107 was controlled until its breakup, but had similar consequences to an uncontrolled entry. So I, I think that's probably pretty fair. Does that explain why I don't see Mir on here? Hmm, that's a really good question. Yeah. So Sam, Sam in the chat's got it right. This is a list of uncontrolled re-entries. Uh, and Mir was controlled all the way back in, which is correct. Yeah. It was controlled, but it burned up. And I guess that's what we want to, or I think that that should be in the list as well, just, you know, for the sake of knowing, because it's kind of an interesting thing to know how many well, things were large and burned up on reentry. Yeah, right, right, right. But that's a different list. This is a list titled the biggest un uncontrolled reentries. So a controlled yeah, reentry does not belong on this list. But yeah, that, that list would be interesting. I agree. But yeah, Tian Gong just number 49, so not that big at all. Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. Uh, Mir is the biggest thing that, that we've intentionally, well, intentionally or unintentionally, a human-made object that's reentered. Definitely the largest, 130.8 tons. It's a good thing that that thing was, uh, was controlled. All right, so moving on to our next story. NOAA called an early end to SpaceX launch coverage. Uh, that's the title of this particular segment that we have written down. But, I mean, is that actually accurate? Because uh, we kind of figured out what happened. And I knew that something had to have been, you know, a miss here. And it looks like it was a, a miscommunication between SpaceX and NOAA. No, it was. It wasn't because no. uh, let's just go ahead and set yeah. it up. Yeah. So so basically they didn't show the second stage footage after the second stage made it to space, which uh, seems really weird. And like, I, I agree, like it seems logical to start from the assumption that it's a um, that it's a communication, uh, a miscommunication. And, and I don't know if this is necessarily appropriate, but, you know, at least there's kind of this logical flow going on. So here's the way it works. The Falcon 9 cameras are intended for engineering purposes. That's that's why they have them on there. But now we also get this secondary payoff where um, they're used for broadcast purposes, um, which is fantastic. I don't think anybody's going to say that's not a cool thing to be able to do. So NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is part of the U U.S. Department of Commerce, which is really weird. I always think of NOAA as being such a, almost a nonprofit, right? Like they, they do such great stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But they get to control some things that uh, U.S. space companies get to do. And one of them is remote sensing. And NOAA says that this is an observation or that these cameras constitute a remote sensing space system. I have no idea why NOAA gets to control U.S. remote sensing. That seems like something that NSA or Air Force or, you know, somebody like that should be controlling, not an environmental group. Maybe I misunderstand what NOAA does. But anyway, so NOAA says that, you know, you can collect data, but you're not allowed to distribute it. And so SpaceX is now applying for a license as a remote sensing space system to get this thing licensed. Um, and they're saying that it shouldn't be an issue in the future. So what was the confusion when SpaceX said this is because of NOAA? And then there was a response from NOAA that, no, that wasn't us. We don't know what you're talking about. Like, that was a bit strange then. Were they not aware of that restriction themselves? Yeah, I've got a feeling that uh, Delta Via 4.3 in the chat says, uh, i.e., their PR people were like, what? And I, I think that's probably what happened. I think that um, Noah said, you can't do this, but they didn't tell PR because why would they? So, so yeah, I, uh, I guess you are right in a, in a way there, David, that there was a miscommunication, but I don't think that's the root of, of this issue. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, 
SpaceX said that they're not going to have an issue for CRS-14. I don't know why. I guess it's because they're working for the government. And so all of a sudden, Noah doesn't get to tell them what they can. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I think it's all kind of... So why hasn't this happened in the past then? I mean, what am I missing here? This is so weird. Yeah, because like... Noah just made this decision that it qualifies as a remote sensing system. Okay, so they just now made that decision, yeah. even though... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. All right. And what is NOAA, like you said, <laughs> no, what are they totally doing? Silly. Making, they're the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. They should be looking at the ocean. I don't know what. This is strange. Okay. Yeah, it All seems right. really weird to me. So so maybe somebody can explain to us the scope of NOAA a bit better. I poked around their website and they talk about, you know, here's how you apply for this and here's what this license covers. But of course, I didn't say why you need a license for that. So where's Bob Ballard when you need him? All right, let's move on to our third topic. So Blue Origin, they have switched their upper stage. So we've seen a launch of New Shepard, and that uses a BE3 engine. And you know what? I'm a bit surprised that I somehow have misremembered something, which I guess is not surprising. I thought that the BE3 was a smaller but uh, still methane LOX engine. It's not, though, is it? It's a Hydrolox engine. Do you have it in your memory that that was a Methalox engine? If because you were I'm to totally tell wrong, me that, I, I wouldn't double guess it. It's like one of those things that you swear that you know, and then you know you find <laughs> out the opposite, and you're like, I could have told you that it was. So the BE-3 is a Hydrolox engine. The BE-4 is a Methalox. And the BE-4 has been tested, but it has never been flown. And so Blue Origin has recently made a decision in order to keep their 2020 target for launching New Glenn that they wanted to change the second stage engine from a vacuum BE4 engine to a BE3. And that's pretty much just to simplify things because the New Glenn, that can have both two stages or three stages, right? And with the old architecture, all three stages were different. You had a BE4 on the first stage, a BE4U, the vacuum variant on the second stage, and then a BE3U on the third stage. So, but this time they're just going to go with BE3Us on both second and third stages. And as I said, that's to keep up with the 2020 date that they have set for the launch of the new Glenn. What does this mean though? So uh, the BE4 was a very powerful engine. I think it might've been, I mean, it's, it's like one of the highest thrust engines I think ever yes. made. So this is five. Yeah. Almost 4,000 pounds of thrust. Or I'm sorry. <laughs> almost 4 million yeah. pounds of thrust. Sorry. 3.8 million. And that's with all engines firing together, right? Because a single one is just 550,000 pounds of thrust, although that is still a huge yeah. amount. But uh, the BE-3 is just a 110,000 pounds of thrust, but it does have higher ISP because it is, after all, a Hydrolux engine. So that part's good, but yeah, you don't get as much thrust. Uh, the idea is to just uh, switch from a single BE-4U engine on that second stage to two BE-3U engines on the second stage. So I guess that would be a combined amount of 220,000 pounds of thrust, which is still not as much as a single BE-4, but I think that they are trying to fill you know, a certain niche. As Sam Moore points out, this uh, announcement also came out with the news that now New Glenn can do all of the Air Force reference orbits, so they can basically nail any payload that the Air Force wants to put up, which is really important. Like that's that's a major part of being able to have a profitable launch vehicle. One interesting modification that they have to make, though, is that that second stage has to be longer in order to accommodate the two BE3U engines. So they're making some pretty, I mean, I guess not huge changes, but they do have to make some significant changes, and yet they think that they can get the 2020 
update faster by doing this than rather just having to do whatever vacuum testing they need to do with the BE4U variant. Yeah, which is really weird because, I mean, they're already going to have to qualify the BE4. So it seems kind of odd that it'd be easier to qualify a BE3 vacuum instead of a BE4 vacuum. If you're going to have to modify it, I guess I guess using the BE3U allows them to start working on it earlier because they don't have to wait for BE4 to be complete, maybe. Yeah, Dan in the chat's pointing out that making a vacuum variant is, is not that easy. I see. So the 3U, thank you, Dan, uh, the 3U was already going to exist. They already have a head start on the 3U. Okay, that makes sense. All right, let's do some short and sweet. And we just got two this week. And what is our first one? So first up, James Webb Space Telescope is now slated for a May 2020 launch. I don't know if you can hear the depression in my voice. JWST is currently undergoing final integration and testing, but apparently NASA is no longer happy with the delay buffer that they had. Although no other information about delays has come to light, this launch delay seems to indicate that all the budgeted delay time has been eaten up and that another year's worth has been brought in. One of the largest impacts of this delay Delay, you know, other than the crippling blow to science, is the need to reschedule its ride on an Ariane 5. Yeah, I heard the depression in your voice, or at least I assumed it. Um, moving on then to our second one, uh, the FCC approves Starlink. Uh, so SpaceX's satellite constellation for low latency global internet has been approved by the FCC. Uh, SpaceX plans to put 4,425 satellites into orbit as part of its first phase for Starlink. Uh, the FCC gave SpaceX a 2024 deadline to put at least half of those satellites up and until 2027 to get all 4,425 into orbit. OneWeb, Telesat, and Space Norway have already received FCC approval, but Starlink is the first U.S.-based constellation of the bunch that will be providing high-speed internet from LEO. So they're one step closer, but apparently this is a very short time span for them. So they have by 2027 to get all 4,425 satellites up. Yeah, that's like over 300 a year. But how many can they put up in one launch? They're like 400 kilograms, something like that, or maybe less than that actually? Yeah, obviously they're not doing like one launch per, but... I suppose what that means is there's, there's you know, X number of launches that SpaceX will have to make, and that's probably more per year than they have ever done thus far so they they better get on it huh i'm not sure why the 2027 limit though i guess that's what i'm wondering is there a reason why they you know want this done in uh, nine years okay so nefa in the chat is pointing out that this has to do with reserving bandwidth so they have that bandwidth reserved for them through that date that yeah i guess that makes sense it's kind of like you're squatting on bandwidth right and you have to use it or lose it can you squat on bandwidth i, I mean you can do it with a domain name so i mean if you're if you're paying for a, a portion of the of the spectrum yeah yeah absolutely yeah all right no questions comments or corrections this week good job us let's just move <laughs> on to upcoming spaceflight events uh just got a couple of things first up is april 5th and that is uh the launch of an arian 5 that's launching superbird 8 slash dsn1 and high last four so i guess that's two spacecraft dsn1 also known as kirameki 1 superbird 8 or superbird b3 all right is that enough names uh that's a japanese x-band military communications satellite and it was planned to be launched in 2016. However, he was damaged during transport, and uh, I guess it, they're just now getting around to launching it. All right, cool. Hylas 4 is a communications satellite built by Orbital ATK 
for Avanti Communications. It features a hybrid propulsion system, so that's pretty neat. Yeah, I guess other than that, pretty standard communication satellite, uh, and it will be providing services to regions of Africa and Europe. Launch time for that, the launch window, is April 5th, 2134 UTC through 2224 UTC. Almost an hour. Aside from launches, we also have some fun going on on NASA TV. So by the time the show goes out, uh, CRS-14 will already have launched, but uh, the Rendezvous capture and installation will still be watchable. Um, so the Rendezvous and capture, the capture is scheduled at 7 a.m. Eastern time on Wednesday, April the 4th. Uh, the coverage of the Rendezvous is going to start at 5.30 a.m. Eastern time, and then they'll be installing it around 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. So that's all, yeah, on NASA TV. And then this one's kind of fuzzy, but we have another potential launch. The NOTAM for quote-unquote stealth space uh, is uh, still extending until April 6th. So that that may happen, but they haven't got their FCC license yet, uh, at least when we're recording this episode on Sunday morning. So uh, that, that may happen this week, but it probably won't. I don't know. It might. Anyway, those are your upcoming space flight events. So that is it for this episode. So let's go ahead and deorbit and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. So that's it. We will see you in one week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.